As you may have noticed, I'm a bit of an exuberant type. And, uh, and the way that expresses itself time, sometimes is that um, I want to share everything. I want to, I, um, I also, I deeply, deeply love the, the teachings and the Dharma and love the, the ongoing uh, inquiry and discovery of the, the nature of our hearts and minds. And, uh, and I, what I found is the more that I've, that I experience the Dharma, the living Dharma, that feeling of being with you right now, which could never, ever, ever, ever be captured in a book or in a concept. The more I live with this as my reference, the life of the unfold, what we may name as the life of the unfolding now, uh, the more I am, um, I fall in love, the more I am uh, unable to in some way contain um, the, the, um, the good news, the news of our, of our amazing capacity to be free and to be well and to even be happy, <laughs> believe it or not. I don't know if I mentioned that the Buddha was called the happy one. He wasn't called the great sufferer. (laughs) And his happiness came through through clear perception, through wisdom, through, as one teacher put it, brushing the dust of memory until, this is Nisargadatta Maharaj, brushing the dust of memory until the clear mirror of his, I'll say in his case, if his mind was laid bare. And when the clear mirror of our mind is laid bare, as you may have even tested, tasted a little bit today, or a little bit over the course of the retreat, you know it comes and goes, it's like a roller coaster ride. But when the clear mirror of the mind is laid bare, reality undisguised And when I say reality undisguised, it means reality right now without a reference to the imagined past, the imagined future, and as we've been talking about as well, the imagined present, the ideas about the present. When the brush, when the dust of memory is cleared and that clear mirror is laid bare, as you may be able to even experience right now as I speak, if you allow that last thought of the past to go back where it came from and the next one in the future to remain unborn for a moment and just hang out here with me. This is just being simply present. If you don't give rise to a, a, um, um, some kind of idea some kind of story. You, in this immediate experience, this fresh reality, if you're not looking back and you're not looking ahead, you will likely not find any evidence of suffering, nor any evidence of a sufferer. Is that true? 
di Buddha. Now Rumi put it this way, he says, why do we stay in prison when the door is so wide open? He just says it very clearly, come out of the tangle of fear thinking, of me thinking, live in silence. He says, flow down and down and down and ever widening rings of being. Just come out of the the narrow, and you could say this is the whole of our practice, is coming out of moment by moment, coming out of the narrow vortex of our thinking. Just coming out for a moment doesn't mean stop thinking. It means coming out of the narrow world that is built in our imagination. And from a place of silent being aware from silent presence. See what you are on present evidence and maybe notice what it is that you think about yourself. Notice the views that you have about those views that continue when you incarnate in them when you when you don't notice them get lost in them carry you along into a stream of of distress carry you on a journey a profound journey a profound drama of time that's always that's where there's never enough or if it's really, you're having a really unpleasant experience, it's too much. Carries you into a, a, that story that we've been talking about a lot of the imagined person called you. I don't mean you. I mean the imagined person called you. Now the you that sits here in full living individuality. And this is, in spite of how it may appear to some people, this is a, quite a kaleidoscope of, of um, unique individuals. There's, uh, there is uh, gender diversity, there's, uh, there's racial diversity, there is um, sexual orientation diversity, There is height diversity, there is weight diversity, there is education diversity. This is a diverse group of individual expressions of life. Each one of you, perfect, perfectly unfolding the only way you could have given all the myriad conditions that have uh, given rise to you. I started to speak about this the other night, how how each of us is here because of so many forces. We've come into being, so there's really, in some ways, each person sitting here has literally no beginning. This is one of the understandings that we have of selflessness is that you can't really find a beginning of you. You know, we say it started with our, our um, parents, they had that look in their eyes and they got... <laughs> you 
Now, but to really look, if you, if you want to expand your view, and the, again, the whole of our practice is coming out of the narrow vortex of our conventional views of reality to this wider ring of being. So if we just open it up a little bit more, we see, we may just even for a moment wonder, well, how did our parents come together? And then how did our parents' parents come together? And what were the religious situation they were in? What was the cultural situation? What was the political? What was the economic? What was the situation with the food, with the weather? Every one of these conditions, had they not come together, we would not be here the way we are. So an understanding of who and what you are cannot be limited to this little story in your mind. It's, it's insulting to your grandeur, to your, to your vastness, to your beginninglessness. Because as one teacher, Nagarjuna says, you're not so different, nor are you the same of all those things that have influenced you. You're not completely cut off from it, nor are you forever bound to it. We are both connected to all things at all times and also unique and individual, a creative expression. Never has it come together exactly like it is with you. Now, do we in our... There's a few things we miss. We miss just appreciating where we came from and how non-personal that whole, the event of your life is. That's one part of it. The other is we don't appreciate how awesome it is that we are each here. How many conditions had to come together. And perhaps most important is what's missed in our narrow vortex of our intrapersonal drama when we're incarnated in our thoughts is we miss that, um, the deliciousness of simply being aware on this, as Thich Nhat Hanh would call it, on this dear green planet. Free of the momentarily, any moment of awareness of the dust of memory. Because what I see, and people who've sat with me know that I get kind of blown away by this, but I see each person, and I see you as, and I know that what I see of you is not the same version that plays in your mind. <laughs> and I, I, at the risk of, of being Pollyannish or not really seeing you the way you are, at, the way you, at least the way you think you are, I see you, each person, even the person who thinks they're the worst person here, I see you as beautiful, as a... As a kind of a unique flower that I'm in awed by each person. And I know that, that you have uh, whatever your name is. You know, it's a wonderful thing to have a name because it locates us right here. It locates our unique individuality. Looking at each person. And I, I started to really look at this when my, uh, my daughter, her name is Molly, 
when she was about two years old, or three years old at this point, I think, it, um, I was just so struck by her. I was struck by how life had conspired to somehow make this, this being through no fault of hers. <laughs> it's, that's just, it still amazes me. But here was this unique person. She was the, in my mind, she was the epitome of Molliness. She was so uniquely Molly, not like anybody else. And I say that about each person that I've met with here. You have your, you are your version of Molliness. And then one day I started to notice, and it, this still has not interrupted her Molliness, and nor has whatever you've thought about yourself ultimately interrupted your version of Molliness. But she started to look around at her, uh, the people she was in nursery school with or playing with, and she had these little brown little curlicues, brown hair, curlicues. She noticed that a lot of the kids were little uh, blonde, straight blonde hair. And so she went to the mirror and she started pulling on her hair trying to straighten it. This was the beginning of making all kinds of manipulations to be like somebody else. Where she started to think, I, and we all have our own version, I should be different than the way I am. I am, and one of the translations of the word, of the word hindrance, I am lacking. I'm lacking straight hair. I'm lacking. Now, it could have been just creative experimentation, but I could see that she wanted to have what, um, what everyone else had. This was the beginning of what we call the comparing mind. The, the Buddha called this mana. The tendency of our mind to to measure ourselves. So this is just one element of our psychological self that is an, approximates certain things about us, but can never really capture nothing. No idea of Molly could capture Molly, and no idea of you could capture you. What can we say? if we just tune into our version of molliness right now, what can we say about ourselves when for a moment we suspend any of the views that we have adopted about ourselves and in the stories, even though our stories are rich and they're, and they're born of our, of our uh, heritage, our struggles, our traumas, our, our, um, you know, our difficulties, etc., our culture. Uh, this is our psychological self, and that, that is, um, that's also uniquely individual. But the teachings invite us to not, uh, to move into continually wider and perhaps more ultimate views of ourselves so that we're not living in a limited, in a limited perception. 
So what can you say about yourself if you were to speak from the immediate experience of your beingness, even free of your name for a moment? After the last thought you had about yourself before the next one, what can you say on present evidence? Why do we keep brushing the dust of memory? Why do we keep orienting ourselves here? There's something we want to discover that can't be found, as Will was saying, can't be found in time. In some ways, we have to step out of time. The good news is, we are always outside of time, actually. I'll move on to another topic after this, but I'm curious, anybody willing to say, what do you experience after the last, please? Just right. Just right. Joy. Joy. Truth. Truth. Happiness. Happiness. Spontaneity. What? Spontaneity. Spontaneity. Kind. Kind. Isn't that amazing? We went nowhere. We went absolutely nowhere. And all of this is here. So this, as I've said before, has not been our main practice. This is what our main practice has been, is what we've referred to many times on the retreat as um, papancha. The word papancha means mental proliferation, complication, elaboration. Uh, And this is what, and it is in this mental proliferation, there's a traditional, a few traditional translations for the word papancha. The first one is the unbidden going of the mind away from the present, away from reality, to imagined experiences and objects. Seem fair enough? You recognize your mind doing that. This is a little bit more bizarre one. The propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. Now, why would we not want to obscure the bare data of cognition? Because it obscures this, uh, this natural happiness, just rightness, sufficiency, enoughness. It's always your molliness. Even when you're feeling uncomfortable. Because uncomfortable, and it's easy to talk about, it's, it's a, but it's, and it's not meant to be adopted as a view, but to be experimented with. Uncomfortable is uncomfortable. It's not me, it's not you, it's no self at all. It's uncomfortable. And it is the personalizing, 
It is the papancha around uncomfortable that turns it, as the Buddha described, into that second arrow that turns something uncomfortable into mental suffering. So a lot of our practice here is waking up to the difference between our immediate and direct experience and the narrative that goes through our mind that describes it. And unfortunately, in our lives, what we have taken as truth and reality is that narrative which is clearly a second-hand version. We've taken that narrative, that story of me that's been built through what's, what the Buddha called avijja, built through avijja is sometimes described as ignorance, but another translation of avijja is unawareness, built through unawareness, the story has been built and we literally have been living in, a, in virtual reality. This imagined version of ourself describes someone, in truth, who does not exist. It describes a virtual you. It doesn't exist as a separate thing or place. It exists as a series of ideas. It's a view of reality. It is not reality. The Buddha called this view, this view of reality that we create, that is created in our mind just from those, that firing of those synapses and that, that effusion that is just part of the way our brain functions. That view of ourselves the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti. Sakaya Ditti. This is essential Dharma, and it's the it is the uh, the central in one of the central insights that the Buddha had. Besides conditionality, which which Will spoke so beautifully about, how things are, everything is conditioned by something else, and everything arises according to conditions and in that, in that way they are selfless just like you have arisen by conditions and you are selfless. Another realization, another doorway into understanding our who and what we are or what we're not is seeing through this view of ourselves called Sakaya Ditti, called the self-view, the self-illusion. This view, when it goes unrecognized, spreads out into uh, a field, as we've talked over and over, of a, it, it spreads out into a view of reality. The one who we imagine ourselves to be is the one that has in our mind has been cre- has come from a place called the past which doesn't exist that is moving through the present on our way to that future end <laughs> or that future happiness or that future whatever so the imagined one is always in time it's always narrow it's on this narrow track 
Now notice what happens after your last thought before the next one. I know I did, I think I did something like this the other night, but notice, notice what happens to, to time when we're right here. If you don't consult the past or the future for your, for your self-definition, what are you? And I think you just described it before. The most natural thing to say is, I'm awake. Now we don't, this is, this is more, this is nearer than our breath, this reality. Yet this is not the way we usually think about ourselves. We usually think about ourselves through the prism of that, of that self-story. So the Buddha was caught in the various views about himself. He was, nat- he was innocently caught up in the view, I'm a kind of a prince-like person. I'm a privileged person. I'm a man. I'm a, you know, everything that goes naturally with, with, um, with his life situation, with the situation he was in. And in his idle thought, as in all, all our, our idle thoughts, he thought about what will make me happy. So he imagined himself as somebody who wasn't quite happy, felt that way. And he wanted to figure out how, I'm, how, I, how I want to be happy. And everything he tried just... Um, made him a little unhappier, a little bit unhappier, to the point where if he was to ful- fulfill, he saw that the, you know, he, just, he was spinning his wheels. And this, he saw that the identity of whoever he was, was um, it wasn't going anywhere. It was, it was leading to a feeling of, it just wasn't enough to be... Uh, this idea of himself. He still felt vulnerable. He still felt, he still felt, um, it just didn't give any, there was no security in being the, the special one or the, the, whatever his role was or whatever his gender was or whatever pleasure he associated with him. It just kept him as it's kept us in a state of continual searching and a sense of insecurity. So the story of ourselves, the view of ourselves, that's based on our situation, based on our past, as, as relatively real as it is, as each of us it does have that unique, precious story. And it's wonderful to talk story and share story, and that's one of the ways that we connect. But the story of ourself is always marked with... Um, because it's based on ideas. One, because it's based on ideas, it's very fragile. You know, if I, if I think I'm, I'm special and somebody, one of you, comes in and says, you know, there's a big doubt, uh, doubt flame, and says, eh, you're not so special. I like the other one better. <laughs> 
And, you know, you communicate that. If I'm bound up in being the special one, what happens? It's just an idea. All of a sudden, this house of, this house of cards, this, this, this very flimsy view called me comes tumbling down. I had a teacher who showed me this so vividly. I was sitting a long several month practice period um, back in the 1980s and with a teacher who was, who was very, well, some called his, the way he worked with people, uh, they called it Stone Age psychology. But one of his devices was to uh, build people up and then tear them down. And so when I first started going into my interviews with him, he would smile, his whole being would smile. And as everything I reported, he'd say, oh, yogi, he'd say yogi. <laughs> <laughs> and I would leave his, the interview room feeling as though I was a hotshot yogi. And he completely had me. I completely incarnated as the great one. (laughs) And once he had me, the next time I came in for an interview, he looked at me, turned away, picked up a book and started reading. Just a gesture of, And then I started to report. And in this style of meeting with the teacher, you don't know how lucky you are. <laughs> you, you, get, you get loved up. You get, you get worshipped. <laughs> in this style of reporting, <laughs> I had to track during all my sittings and all my walkings, which I then recorded in a notebook, what I felt on the rising feeling, what I felt on the falling feeling, how many breaths before the mind wandered, and did I note it when, the, when I became aware? And then, and then did I move back to the object quickly? And when I was with the object, how fast before the mind wandered again? And what happened during my clearest sitting? And, and did, and sadness arose? And then, and how long it lasted? Did I note it? Uh, where did I feel it in my, and I report it. And the beauty of that practice was that I became really refined at, at noting the moment to moment experience. And it really helped me see the difference between, uh, just how barely simple things were that are actually happening. You know, there's really only six sense experiences happening. The whole of our life is six little experiences repeating themselves. And so the, our whole story is an elaboration. It's, a, it's some papancha. It's removed from reality. So I got to see reality, but I started to, I thought I was a hotshot reporter too. But I came in, I gave my report, and every word out of my mouth, he's like this, shook his head, almost like the, the, uh, the Hindi uh, get away, jow, you know, go away. And, uh, and I completely 
collapsed in the face of his indifference and his aversion. And it just showed me that I had built this monument to an imagined me. So fragile. So this self-view, Sakaya Ditti, and I, I say this now because we, this is one of the things that torments us in our daily life. This self-view is also um, tethered to I, the number one identification that we have is with this body. And this is, the body is, as we have talked about a lot, the body is, is changing all the time. If you put it under a microscope, you don't find a body. So it's, it's insubstantial, it's just empty. It's, you know, you've seen bodies under a microscope. If you went strong enough, you'd just find empty space. It's amazing. So we experience this body, it's part of our story. And it, it's based on the, the proximity of our observation, which is kind of from a distance. You come closer and already you know that it's streaming and vibrating and pulsing and doing this whole thing. Always changing. But in the fact that it's changing and it's aging, it's not a very secure place to place our identity. Even though it is kind of built into our basic conditioning as human beings, it is something that is still a limited view of reality and a, lo- a source of a lot of our suffering. So this is all part of Sakaya Ditti, I am my body. So it's so interesting when we just experience, if you just change for a moment, and, I, and you don't want to talk to people like this. You know, when you describe what happened to, on the retreat, you don't say, you, you say, my body did this and my body did that. But when we, what we, one of the things that we can experiment with ourselves is experiencing it as the body. The body. So this my body, as Will was saying, is, is an extra overlay. It's a personalizing it. It's, a, it's assuming that it is inhabited by a me. And that this is me. So the self-view is tethered to thoughts, which are fleeting. The body, which is aging, changing, not even a thing. Just a field of of processes and sensations. Organs. Here, just a, a little thing about the body. Humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Every person has a unique tongue print. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. <laughs> Sneezes can travel over 100 miles per hour. Takes 17 muscles to smile, 43 to frown. Takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. (laughs) Most people blink about 25 times a minute, 20,000 times a day. 
Average person speaks about 31,000 words per day, not on retreat. (laughs) Every breath we inhale, billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined the DNA from genes of the cells, it would fit into an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That is from the earth to the sun and back 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. (laughs) (laughs) Humans shed 600, this one just, I'm sorry. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds a year. By 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your house are made from dead skin. The body makes new stomach lining every five days, new liver every six weeks, body replaces a new, new head hair every two to five years, replaces new eyebrows that consist of 450 hairs every three to five months. Body grows new skin once a month. Body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you listen to this sentence. In other words, in any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? So all of this identity that goes on in our view, so many thoughts, I am my body. I talked about the other night, the, the, the new, maybe I didn't put it this way, but as much as I didn't want to be particularly identified with my body, once age 60 rolled along, the thoughts of I am 60 and what that meant just started rolling through. It was almost like there was a direct connection. Now, if I get bound up in those thoughts, then I, I start to feel, oh, oh, something wrong with me. Something's wrong here. But if I can notice the view of myself as the 60-year-old, which is not myself, as our teacher, one of our teachers, Anagarika Manindra said, in trying to show that a thought just approximates reality. He says, a thought of your mother is not your mother. I love trying that on. Thought of my mother is not my mother. But the same is true for ourselves. A thought of ourselves is not ourselves. It's just a view. It's what's called Sakaya Ditti, a self-view. And as a view, it's just momentary not something you can hang your hat on. As this a woman named Jocelyn Kings put it, why do people prefer the quicksand of somethingness or someoneness rather than the firm ground of emptiness or openness? So right now, before you, before you identify with the story of yourself, before you look back and before you look ahead, Notice this firm ground of openness. Don't miss it. Because in this firm ground, everything is connected. If I'm here, 
outside of my view of myself. This is why, why we see through the self-illusion is because the moment I, I see through that illusion of the self-view, I also see through the illusion of other, of you. When we don't, when we step out of those thought worlds for a moment, where's the dividing line between us? This is why sometimes attention, it's, attention is described as attention brings affection. You ever hear that expression? Attention brings affection. That's why I, I think of the, the unifying of our mind, the gathering of our attention here, the sustaining that attention. Do you know what happens when you do that? I could tell you technically speaking, there are certain mental qualities that we have that are part of the nature of our mind, the expression of the nature of our mind. One of those mental qualities that is that capacity to gather our attention. I'm, I've gathered it right now to Kate, right here, sitting in front. Hope that this doesn't make you uncomfortable. I've gathered my attention to Kate, and then I sustain that attention, that capacity to stay with you and if I connect with you and I stay with you, how can I not start to feel some kind of, like I've entered into some kind, some kind of intimacy, some kind of, they call it in the Tao, Taoist tradition, the kind of cosmic bubble. Now nothing happened other than connect and sustain. And in the meditation practice, when we connect with, a, with the object of our breath or something, and, or connect with changing objects and sustain our attention to them, that's why what happens in Vipassana, there are three other qualities that start to, um, start to arise. The first one is called sukha. We start to feel comfortable. You know, if I hang out here, we start to be comfortable with one another. If I hang out with the breath, I start to feel that little sense of comfortable, mind and body harmonizing. None of that is me, none of it is mine. It's just conditions. This I'm not, it's just conditions. So we've got the connecting, we've got the sustaining. They get stronger too, so you actually stay here a little bit. Start to feel this sukha. Then another quality starts to brew. It's called um, pity, or otherwise known as rapture. Sometimes rapture is translated in terms of how our mind is as intense interest. I become really interested. And, and I start, I don't feel as much um, separation with. With, I can't find any dividing line, I'm just right there. And then this, a last quality starts to emerge. If I stay with you or I or, uh, stay with an object, whatever it is that I'm paying attention to, I start to feel a, a quality called ekagata, means one-pointedness, one point. I'm at that single point I'm in touch with my molliness, just being myself. Not an idea of myself, I'm just right there. And 
the deeper meaning of that maliness, or <laughs> I mean, the deeper meaning of ekagata, of one-pointedness, it's the one point that includes everything. So each of us, in our individuality, if we let ourselves be, that's why you start, I, I don't know if, if you had this experience, but often over the course of the retreat, on the, after several days in, you start to fall in love with everybody. On longer retreats, you start noticing people leaving chocolates on cushions, flowers, just little quiet gestures, very anonymous, but it's all because the, the love starts to flow. This gentle attention to things as they are, one-pointedly, abiding in the living present, it's the love muscle. Love happens because it melts away momentarily, helps us see beyond the tangle of our fear thinking. It helps us live in silence and flow down, silence and flow down and down in ever widening rings of being. And we come to realize the, the other words of Rumi. He says, we are the mirror, as well as the face in it. We are pain and what cures pain. We are the sweet cold water, as well as the jar that pours. We are tasting the taste of eternity in each moment. He also said, if you could get rid of yourself, just once. And we've been doing it all night. All retreat. And when I say get rid of yourself, it means get rid of the belief that you are what you think. It doesn't mean you get rid of thoughts of yourself. We're going to have a, a, a billion more. You know, it says we have 65,000 thoughts every day. Did I say this already? 90% repeats from the day before. And they're mostly about me. I'm not going to get rid of those, but we can make that shift, that liberating shift from incarnating in them to noticing them. That's the difference between bondage and freedom. It's that simple. He says, if you can get rid of yourself just once, the secret of secrets will open to you. The face of the unknown, hidden beyond the universe, will reveal itself. So it's important somewhere in the span of our practice to realize the, the difference between the concepts of ourselves, the stories, and the reality. And begin to trust the reality. It's, those of you who sat with me know I love this little quote from James J. Audubon who said, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, Believe the bird. <laughs> so we've been consulting the, the field guidebook. And what we learn on retreat and why it is so important as we transition out of retreat to make sure that we have some measure of like-minded support in our life, some, some teaching, some practice that keeps pointing us back to, to this fact. 
we will, unless we have support, we will, we will end up living just as we have been. It's much more practiced in, in virtual reality. This is why the, the Buddha didn't stop with Buddha. He didn't stop with Dharma. He said in order to remember the Buddha and the Dharma, to be awake to what's true and what's real, you need the Sangha. It's the third, it's, the, it's all three. It's not just a throwaway. It's not just an idea, oh, community, it's cool. <laughs> it is nobody, no one, no one does this alone. Nobody. I haven't met anybody. And I, f- I think in terms of, of just as, as simple as, as the different kinds of insights that have come in my own practice, they've always come in relationship to uh, a teacher or a, um, a sangha member. Or, um, it's usually been with because of my interactions with teachers, a lot of that, it's huge influence. Our minds are self-illuminating. We have this innate intelligence, but for some reason, we have to keep being pointed back to ourselves. Otherwise, we, as the Buddha described, we wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle. We keep being reborn into this idea of lack and insufficiency. And forget that on present evidence, there is none. Lack and insufficiency, it may be about our life situation, maybe about our bank account, or our, cre- our creative discontent, or ma- many things that may need attention and, and information and skills and this and that. But to, for liberation, for freedom, you don't need anything. You just have to be what you are already. One teacher said, all search for happiness is misery. And leads to more misery. That the only happiness worth that name is the happiness of being awake. So we're trying to reclaim, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, you who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living. Stop being the destitute child Come home. Reclaim your heritage. We're trying to reclaim that our version of molliness, just that, that preciousness, that, that primordial wakefulness that lives in us, that is free from the beginning. You may have sensed it today as the memory was brushed we hear, you know, the part of the use of those gongs is to, is to cut through your discursive thinking for a moment. Not, nothing wrong with discursive thinking, but, but in order to discover sometimes what is prior to that or what, what, um, what is even more primal, primary, it has to, has to quiet a little bit. 
once it's, once it's quiet and once we've seen, then we can see that the whole array of thoughts are just an expression of awareness. They're not, it's not separate, it's, and it's not even a problem once it's known. The, the water in the jar, it's one thing. Awareness and thoughts, an inseparable expression. In the Tibetan tradition, that when they, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they say, remember the, the clear light, the clear, bright, shining white light of your own nature. It's deathless. And it's all about when you're dying, but it's really meditation instructions for living. It says, when you die, you will see many images that will be based on your past actions, your past thoughts, your past fears, You'll have many wonderful, beautiful, terrible images. If you can see those images as just an expression of that clear light, you'll be liberated. But if you, if you get carried away by those images, lost in them, you will wander a long time confused. So when the Buddha woke up, I had intended this to be a practical talk, but I I got away from myself. When the Buddha woke up out of the the dependence on that story, the belief in that story, he saw the way he had, when he was under the three common misperceptions, when he saw that everything is changing and and not permanent, when he saw that what is changing and not permanent can't give lasting satisfaction, unreliable. When he saw that it was all empty, it broke the spell that had made everything seem like me and mine, ownable. And then he saw his body wasn't, it was a rent-a-body, as Jack Cornfield would say. He saw his mind moving. And even he saw the story of me and how he had just built a monument to the version of himself that played in his mind. He let out a cry. He said, through many births, in the wandering on, he had been born again and again. We all, we do it a a thousand times a day. Through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Oh, house builder, you've been seen. You won't build another house and get away with it and not, be, not see anymore. Your rafters are broken now. Your ridgepole destroyed. That's, that's defilements and ignorance or unawareness. Ignorance and unawareness are the same. Your rafters are broken. Your ridgepole destroyed. Your, my mind gone to the unconditioned, to cravings cessation, to becoming cessation, to trying to get somewhere the cessation, it's, it's faded away and here I am. And now did, when he woke up and he saw the, through the self-illusion, saw through the illusion of others, what did he do? What did he do? Did he vanish into thin air? No. Because of his sensitivity and openness, his compassion, 
he then spent the next, uh, he saw, as I mentioned the other night, he saw those uh, that there were many with just a little dust on their eyes who, if he spent some time pointing, could realize the same thing they did. And of course that includes everyone who, who is interested, can be taught to come and see for themselves. It's not exclusive by any means. And he basically gave himself over to being of benefit. So this, the natural effect of this so-called selfish practice, <laughs> it could be considered, and this is the way I view it, the most radical social action that you do in your life. Because as the same teacher I've quoted many times tonight said, the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. And as long as people are the way they are, the world will continue to be the way it is. And if if we want a peaceful world, we have to have peaceful people. People who are at rest, who are not hungry ghosts with little mouths and huge stomachs, insatiable, entering continually into that narrow path of trying to get what I want and being oblivious to the fallout on everyone else. You see the effects of greed in our world. It has to start with each person coming in tune with love. And uh, that's, that's us. Who else? Can't wait for somebody else to do it. Can't wait for a, a movement. It starts with each person's heart. Because as Thich Nhat Hanh says, you are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious that we enter are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me joy this evening. So I think I'll end right now with a poem from Derek Walcott. Called Love After Love. The time will come, and I'll change the words, the time has come. (laughs) I'll, I'll read it the way it's written. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. 
Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. May all beings know their true home is right here. Let's sit quietly. As Emerson said, who you are, shout so loudly, I can't hear what you say. <laughs>